The legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. Kevin. And I'm Haley. We talk about stories of mystery, true crime, and folklore of the unusual, unsettling, and oftentimes unsavory goings-on of our world today, yesterday, and long ago. And welcome back to episode number 22. I was going to say it in Spanish, but I realized I don't know 22 in Spanish. Oh, Kevin. (laughs) Kevin, Kevin, Kevin. So we're starting off goofy, huh? That's right. You bet. You bet. You bet we are. <laughs> I appreciate the honesty, though. Oh, I took French in high school, so mm-hmm. um, I'm sure at one point I learned the number 22 in Spanish, but I don't know. In what French it is. class? Well, I just mean at some point I'm sure I learned it. I don't. It wasn't in French class or in any class. Sure, but it was probably here's just, how to say 22 in nine different languages. Yeah, exactly. Is what you're saying. One of okay. those sorts of things. Exactly. Yeah, that happens all the time. Yeah, exactly. So yeah. Well, opening question, as we always ask, what you drinking? I am drinking a watermelon Simply Spiked Lemonade because I'm not ready to let go of the delicious summertime flavor, though I am also open to the delicious autumn time flavor. So I wonder if they're going to come out with the special autumn flavor of the Simply drinks. I don't know. I mean, I could see them doing like a simply hard cider, Ooh, like, an, should. like an apple cider. Yeah. That would make sense. Caramel apple cider. Ooh. No. I would buy that so fast. Mm, same. Same. I'm a simple lady. That's why you get the simply Just Give me drinks. a seasonal drink and I'm so happy. <laughs> simply seasonal. Simply seasonal. They're really missing a chance, right? We're literally giving them content. You're welcome, simply. Yeah. If you don't, if you don't sponsor us now, there's going to be a problem. Well, don't threaten. Let's <laughs> not make a threat. If you don't sponsor us now, then you're missing out you're on missing out on gold. Yeah, gold. Yeah, Kevin's got his silly pants on a little bit. It's because I'm so awake. I'm usually not this wide awake, mm-hmm. but uh, I had you're a coffee so- at like oh. five p.m. So. <laughs> I was gonna say, are you just whizzed up on life, or like what is this? <laughs> I had a late cold brew today, which is already. Uh, a lot more caffeine in the cold brew in case you didn't know that. Mm-hmm. And I had it 
much later in the day than I usually do. Right. So now I'm enjoying a downer by having a uh, Canada Dry with white rum and special secret ingredient, French vanilla terrini. Or it's just regular vanilla. Is. is it just regular? That was French vanilla. Nope. Oh, well, regular vanilla terrini, mm-hmm. which just adds a nice little sweetness to it. I feel like it tastes like cream soda. It really does. It's You honestly don't even really taste the alcohol in it. That's what I like to call danger juice. Yes. It is very dangerous, I'm sure. Well, my love, you got a feel-good fact for us for this week? I got another one of those spooky feel-good facts. Oh, yes. All right. So watching horror movies can create long-term benefits for our brains. In studies Mm. done on how our brains and bodies react to horror movies, it's been discovered that horror movies induced what one study called good stress. So while ongoing stress weakens our immune system, smaller, more manageable and temporary stress, like the type induced by watching a horror movie, can actually strengthen our immune system and train our brains to better handle longer or more intense periods of stress. Wow. So that was real wordy, but that is very interesting. That's super cool. So yeah, so so being spooked like in a haunted house or Mm -hmm. watching a horror movie or something. Mm -hmm. That's really interesting. Yeah. Like the physiological effects can actually yeah. train and prepare our brains to handle stress better. The jury's still out because I feel like I watch a lot of horror movies and I'm always stressed. But maybe I'm always just a little stressed and I didn't even realize like a transition out of very stressed to like just a little bit stressed. Well, yeah, you probably just are constantly stressed. So you don't get to experience the burst of stress that comes with being spooked. Mm-hmm. You just are stressed and then you're watching a movie while already being <laughs> tense. You yeah. never actually, you never actually chill out all the way. Yeah. Well, can't win them all. Can't win them all. So your immune system is just always actively going. Right. Yeah. <laughs> That's hilarious. You'd think I'd never get sick. I honestly, I would think that you'd be like a superhero at this point. <laughs> right. Like I will <laughs> never get sick ever again in my life. But Marvel superhero. Alas. Or, yeah. One of those ones from, uh, uh, when Stan Lee had his show of like mm-hmm. superhumans that yeah. you just go find random people, you would be the person that You're like never sick girl. Yes. Always stressed girl. Yeah. Perma stress. Perma stress. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Oh, silly, silly, silly. My dear. What do you have for us today? All right. So for this week's story, I'm going to tell you about a case that I've always been super fascinated by. It's strange and confusing And it's still unsolved even to this very day. So you're Mm. probably going to hate it. (laughs) You don't love the unsolved. So tonight I'm going to tell you all about who put Bella in the witch elm. So turn the lights down low, snag yourselves a Reese's pumpkin and buckle up because this one's a doozy. Yes. Pumpkins are amazing. I feel like the pumpkin tastes better than the regular shaped ones. I agree. The Even pumpkins though it's and the eggs. Same. Also, they did release like bats and uh, ghosts and Cute. I think maybe one more. I um, want the ghost one. Yeah, they're good. All right. All right. So we're going to get it. Okay. Yeah, let's get into it. <laughs> so we're going to hop back in time and across the pond to Worcestershire, England <laughs> in 1943. W- Worc- I, Worcestershire. I'm so sorry. I'm just going with it because I think that's the only time I put that in there. I'm so sorry. Fair. fair. I but tried my very best. This is like the sauce. Probably. Yeah. I don't know. A lot of people would say, especially in the Midwest, 
Worcestershire sauce. I used to call it Worcestershire sauce. Worcestershire sauce. Yeah. And yeah. I'm so sorry. I'm so very sorry to any English listeners we may have. So, as you know, in 1943, World War II was raging on at this time. On April 18th, 1943, four teenage friends were out hunting for rabbits to help supplement food at home since wartime rations were a thing at this time. Hmm. These four friends were 17-year-old Tommy Willits, 15-year-olds Bob Farmer and Robert Hall, and 14-year-old Fred Payne. They also had their dogs with them to assist in their hunt. So this was a common practice for the boys on the weekends. They were out looking for rabbits in Hagley Wood, which was located in the Hagley Hall estate owned by Lord Cobham, meaning Hagley Wood was private property. So this was not legal and they were trespassing. Nice. However, Lord Cobham did know that times were hard, and so he didn't usually prosecute trespassers. Mm. I don't know if that was common knowledge. The way that I saw it phrased everywhere was that nobody knew that that was like a thing that he always knew people were on his property, but he never really did anything about Mm. it. But like, shout out to Lord Cobham. Yeah, that's a good guy. That's a great guy. Wow, what a good guy. (laughs) So people would come in and chop wood for firewood, hunt animals, or gather edible plants and things like that on the property. And Hagley Wood and other wooded areas like it would also be used as like lover's lanes sometimes. Nice. But Lord Cobham just let people do whatever they wanted for the most part. As they were sort of tromping through the woods, they would make semi-frequent stops to check out the hollows of trees for bird's nests that might have eggs that they could take home for food as well. Hmm. And that's when the boys made a shocking discovery. One of the boys had climbed up the trunk of a witch elm tree that had been coppiced which causes there to be hollows in the trunk, which I'll explain more about what that is in a second. Okay. So he looked down the hollow trunk and saw what he at first believed to be a bird's nest. When the other boys came over and looked into the hollow from a lower angle so that they could try and reach in and gather the eggs, that's when they realized that this was not a bird's nest, but a skull. Ooh. Yes. They used a branch to sort of scoop and pull the skull towards them. And when they pulled it out, they quickly realized that this was not an animal skull, but a human skull. This obviously freaked them out. Mm -hmm. So they put the skull back in the tree and got out of Hagley Wood as quickly as they could, trying to figure out what to do next. They believed that it was best to not report what they'd found to police because they didn't want to get in trouble for trespassing. Mm -hmm. They did tell Fred Payne's 17-year-old brother Donald about it. They went back and showed him the skull, making him also promise to never tell anyone. When they went back, Farmer said that when he looked back down into the tree, he noticed that along with the skull, he believed that he'd also seen a green bottle, a pair of shoes, and more bones inside of the hollow. Oh. So the boys are like, okay, we just saw this thing. Yeah. This feels like we talk, we've talked about this a few times, but like the classic movies where the boys have an adventure, you know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. And they're sworn to secrecy. Yeah, we're not telling like, anyone. Like stand by me, almost. Yeah, I was just thinking. That's what I me. was thinking yeah. of. And so that was kind of the agreement. We just stumbled upon something very spooky, and now we are brothers for life. Yes, kind of thing. Yes. So the boys would not keep the secret for very long. <laughs> Within a very short time after finding the skull in the tree, I believe the same night, Tommy Willits had told his father what they'd found. Some reports do say a week, and others say it was only a few hours. But either way, the beans were spilled. His father immediately went to the Lye police station and told Sergeant Chris Lamborn about what his son and friends had found. It was late in the evening when this was reported to police, so they would wait to begin their investigation until the following morning. So on the next morning, April 19th, 1943, Tommy Willits and Sergeant Lamborn met up with Sergeant Richard Scarratt from Clint, Constable Jack Pound from Hagley, 
and Motor Patrol Sergeant Jack Wheeler at Hagley Wood, where Willits would direct them to the witch elm where the skull was found. Oh, okay. So we're going to chat about what a witch elm is for a second and what's so special about this one specifically, just so that we all kind of have the right picture in our heads as to what this looks like. Yeah. So there's actually some dispute as to whether this tree is a witch elm or a hazel tree, because this tree was one that had been coppiced. I learned that coppicing is a pretty common practice where people will like repeatedly cut a tree down at the base so that they can harvest timber Hmm. and like that sort of thing. So if coppicing is done right, multiple new stems will shoot out of the same stump, creating more wood to be harvested in the future. Hmm. And so not only does it produce like millions of small branches, but Mm -hmm. it also can produce hollows inside of the trees. So trees that are coppiced actually tend to grow stronger and live longer because they develop like really strong root systems. That's really cool. It's kind of like tricking a tree into growing stronger and into producing more wood. Sure. Yeah. So because this tree had been coppiced, it had an absurd amount of branches like jutting out in all different directions. Mm -hmm. The assumption is that it was a witch elm. They earned the name witch elm, which is W-Y-C-H and not W-I-T-C-H, because witch basically just means pliant or flexible, and it was used to make coffins, bows, and chairs, and that kind of thing. Oh, cool, yeah. So I wanted to explain that really fast, because you hear the word witch, and if you're not looking at the spelling, it can be like, right? what are we doing with two witch episodes in a row? Or like, (laughs) what is this weird tree I've never heard of? And they're not common here, as far as I know. So, Especially in in October. Yeah. (laughs) Felt a little on the nose to do that, to not explain it, I guess. Sure. So... Investigators went with Willits to the witch elm where he and his friends had found the skull the day before. Mm -hmm. So when they arrived and located the correct tree, investigators began taking the usual photos and notes describing the scene over the course of April 19th and 20th. The tree itself had a trunk that was about five and a half feet tall, and the hollow of the tree began at about three and a half feet from the bottom, and it was also funnel-shaped. Oh, okay. The opening to the hollow itself was also sort of funnel-shaped, and it was about two feet by one foot. So it's not a super big yeah, yeah. entrance. Just a little tiny little little spot for small animals, honestly, and mm-hmm. I guess 14-year-old boys. Right. Well, the, yeah. and they had to use a stick to reach that far back because it was such a small oh, opening. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So just to get a little visual. So this is relevant to helping the coroner determine a cause of death and for investigators to be able to attempt to piece together a timeline and all of that. So we'll talk more about that shortly as well. Inside of the hollow was the skull, some leaf litter, and some, like, small twig debris, indicating that whoever put this body here may have tried to use the debris to help and hide the remains. Hmm. Okay. There were also more bones inside of the tree, as well as other bones scattered in the same area around the tree. They found shoes, what they described as a cheap rolled gold ring, and a green bottle inside of the hollow. They also found a tattered mustard or khaki-colored skirt or dress, likely worn by the victim at the time of death, and they made note of a significant tree root growth in and around the fabric of the dress, indicating she'd probably been there for a minute. Yeah. Oh, I don't like that. That makes me sad already. Yes. This was initially referred to as the Hagley Wood murder or the tree murder riddle. Hmm. Tree murder riddle. That'll make more sense as we go. Okay, okay. (laughs) So the man who would perform the forensic end of the investigation was a man by the name of Professor James Webster, who was referred to as, quote, the greatest detective of them all. His evidence sent more murderers to the scaffold than any other pathologist in Britain, end quote. Hmm. So he's like the guy you want working forensics on your case. 
Interesting. He was widely regarded as the best pathologist in all of Britain. The book I read for this part of the story gives a little biography about him and some of the like highlights of his work in the field. And it's really interesting. So I'll make sure to link that later because you want to read about this guy. Hmm, Okay. So Professor Webster attended the crime scene and then the remains were sent to the Birmingham Forensic Laboratory where he was assisted by Dr. John Lund back at the lab. These guys, by all accounts, were the best of the best in their field. So the remains were determined to be female. Professor Webster believed that she was roughly five feet tall and that she was likely somewhere around the age of 35 at the time of her death. He gave a broad range initially, believing that she was between the ages of 25 and 40. But from what he could tell, he believed that she was definitely closer to 40 than she was even to 30. But he still gave that range just to be safe. Sure. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. Okay. The bones scattered in and around the tree revealed several things. First, the skull was found in two parts. There was like the top part of the skull that was intact. And then the lower jaw or the mandible was found separated from the head. Hmm. Okay. There was a segment of the mustard or khaki colored fabric that had been shoved into the mouth that had also gotten stuck on the bottom jaw. So it was like pushed really far back. Yeah. So Professor Webster believed that this likely happened before death and that by the way that the clothing was tucked that far back into the skull, it's highly possible that the fabric could have caused her to asphyxiate and be the cause of death, which like that would be just a terrible way to die. Oh, gosh. Yeah. Like the panic of that would be so Uh scary. So he said it wasn't impossible that the clothing was shoved back in her mouth like that after death, but he believed it was pretty unlikely. The most likely cause of death here is asphyxia. Yeah. Another possible cause is strangulation because they did recover a broken hyoid bone at the scene. Hmm. What is a hyoid bone? It's a little tricky to explain. And that word is always trips me up, but I'm going to do my best. We're going to, we're going to just go with it. If you get, uh, you get stumbled over on these words. Yeah, just pretend that I said it right. So the hyoid bone is a small U-shaped bone that's located between the bottom jaw and the larynx. So like right in the middle of your neck. Injury to this bone is very rare because it's pretty well protected, but fractures to the hyoid bone are pretty much exclusively discovered in a post-mortem exam. Hmm. So after death. A completely fractured hyoid bone would happen with significant trauma to the neck, and it could be indicative of various forms of strangulation, with manual strangulation being the most likely. So the hyoid bone is widely considered to be relevant in determining a cause of death, but it's not necessarily a slam dunk in determining a cause of death. Oh, okay. It's a tricky thing in this case, especially because the body had been in the elements for some time and other parts of the body had been messed with by animals. Sure. So it's highly possible that the fragment of hyoid bone that was recovered was as a result of animal activity as well. It could have possibly not been a factor at all in her cause of death. And also, universally, people didn't look at the hyoid bone as a means of determining death by strangulation until 1952. So. Oh, so after. So after this. a solid chunk after this. Mm -hmm, Like nine years after this. Hmm. Okay. So just a little background. I felt like that was worth getting into a little bit because Mm -hmm. this isn't the only case where that's mentioned. Mm -hmm. And it's caused a lot of debate across different things. And so I just thought it was at least relevant to put it out there. Yeah. Okay. So the skeleton was also determined to be incomplete though. It was determined that the right hand had been severed and not recovered. They don't know where her right hand is. Hmm. Two of the victim's teeth were knocked out and those were also not recovered. They believe that those could have been knocked out either in transport or while she was being put into the tree 
mm-hmm. or even potentially stolen by the murderer or murderers either to conceal her identity. Maybe if she had like specific dental work done oh, or if there yeah. was anything valuable in the teeth, like gold or silver, or whatever right. that they could sell. Right. So it's putting that out there. Hmm. There was also another tooth missing from the bottom jaw that had been removed a little bit before death. Um, he estimated around a year. She okay. also had a very specific thing going on with her teeth. Hmm. So on the bottom jaw, the left molar was extremely decayed and the incisors were slightly overlapped. So the bottom two front teeth were slightly crooked. Oh, okay. On the top jaw, he noted that they were in good, clean condition, except for one molar that had showed beginning signs of decay as well. This is the weird part about her teeth. So her two central incisors, which are two front teeth, mm-hmm. were both noticeably protruding, like poking out, and they were overlapped. They were like very oh. uniquely crooked and very uniquely like facing outward. Yeah. So that's super interesting. Mm, okay. So the reason that this is weird, though, is because it wasn't noted in the autopsy notes that the front two teeth were crooked. And when they put out a dental inquiry, this wasn't a factor that they thought to focus on. Like they briefly mentioned it, but they focused more on the bottom jaw findings, which is weird because a super notable thing like very specific Mm -hmm. dental abnormalities or whatever would be more memorable to more people. So I think that the the thought was more focusing on the dentists, like dentists who may have done Uh, work on someone who you would recognize the bottom central incisors being crooked mm -hmm. and then that specific tooth being pulled. Um, okay. But I feel like the general public would identify more with the two front teeth being crooked. Like you would remember that about somebody, you know what I mean? Right. Maybe, maybe that's just somewhat common. I don't know. I I don't know either. I don't know either, but in the dental inquiry, he also noted that there were signs of a gum condition that likely would have affected the victim's breath and would have made her mouth feel very painful. Hmm. So Professor Webster believes that it was highly probable that she had given birth one time in her life based on the condition of her hips and pelvis. Oh. So that's also, I feel like, pretty important. Yeah. As for how long she'd been dead, Professor Webster believed that she'd been dead for at least 18 months, but potentially for three years or more. The range of 18 months to three years was given because of the condition of the bones, primarily. Mm, Okay. Yeah, so because they're they're so much... Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Weathered and, mm-hmm. and all that kind of stuff. Time like, in the elements, animal yeah, activity. Yeah. So they can assume, oh yeah, this has been out here for this range of time. Also, mm-hmm. depending on when she was placed in the tree, a tree could potentially create like a little mini biome mm-hmm. with like higher heat and humidity because they maintain that stuff. Right. Because they're blocked off from, right. from yeah. wind and stuff like that. So that could also change decomposition, all that kind of stuff. So So, it could have been out there longer than it seems. mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. Yes. So certain factors can delay decomposition and some can accelerate it. So it was kind of hard to give a certain answer. Right. So the 18 months to three year range did make sense. Professor Webster felt pretty confidently that she'd been in the tree since in or around October of 1941. Hmm. And so this was 1943. So it's been a minute. Yeah. Then there's the matter of trying to figure out how her body got into the tree and at what point, either before or after her death, that she was put there. I'd mentioned before that the entrance to the hollow of the tree was two feet by one foot, which is not large enough for a human body to go into alive without Mm -hmm. serious injury or broken bones or anything like that, which wasn't totally evident on the bones. It wasn't not evident just because of the condition of Mm -hmm. some of her bones, but 
based on the position she was found in, they believed that she was placed into the tree feet first. And so she definitely didn't go in alive. That's, that's the assumption that they're making at this point. So this ruled out at that time, accidents and suicide almost definitively. Mm -hmm. If she was placed in the tree after death, then she would have had to have been put there either immediately after she died or long after she died and decomposed. Mm Mm-hmm. This is because if she was placed there after rigor mortis had set in, they wouldn't have been able to shove her body in there. Right. She'd be too stiff to get her in there because this is a small spot, you know. Right. So if they placed her body in there as it was in the process of decomposing, remnants from her skin and things like that would have stuck to like the jagged tree bark at the entrance to the hollow of the tree. Mm -hmm. There was also no evidence of that. Mm. So they're trying to figure out either – Somebody who had a car that could drive her there, somebody killed her right there and saw this would yeah. be a good place to hide the body or somebody killed her elsewhere right. and then brought her badly, her badly decomposed yeah. bones yeah. there. That's kind of the idea. Ooh. But also the general unlikelihood that anyone would want to handle a body that was like dead in the middle of decomposing, mm-hmm. even though it's not impossible, it's just not really super probable. Mm-hmm. So this leaves the idea that she was killed at a different location where she had decomposed, like I said. Then her bones were brought to the tree and disposed of there. This one does make a lot of sense for a handful of reasons. First, if she'd been placed there either alive or immediately after death, decomposition would have been super evident in the area surrounding the tree. There would have Hmm. been flies and other insects swarming the tree without a doubt. Oh, yeah. So the tree that she was found in was also pretty close to a road that was decently trafficked. And so people would have been able to see and smell decomposition. And there were no reports of this anywhere. Hmm. So that almost rules out that she had decomposed there. Okay. So the highest likelihood is killed somewhere else, decomposed, brought there, shoved Mm -hmm. in there. Hmm. Yes. But okay. I do say almost because like I mentioned before, she'd been in the tree at least long enough for branches and roots to intertwine into her decomposing clothing and bones. Hmm. So, yeah, it's okay. yes. This is like they're they have very little to work with in trying to establish what happened. Yeah, quite, quite mysterious. There's also some dispute about the placement of the various bones, though. Some of her bones and one of her shoes uh, were scattered in the area surrounding the tree. Hmm. This could have been the result of animal activity, but it also could have been like carelessness with the disposal of the bones. Like hmm. if somebody was carrying a bag of bones, literally, and hmm. dropped some as they went, some things fell out of a bag as they went, that could yeah. cause that. So one more thing that's important is that investigators did believe that the person or people who killed the woman were most likely local because of the coppicing that was common in Hagley Wood. Local people knew that this was a common practice in that wood, and so they would be more likely to consider using one of those trees for body disposal more than an outsider would. Right. Yeah. So they believe that whoever killed her was local. Hmm. So let's talk about the clothing she'd been wearing. So Dr. Lund, who I'd mentioned earlier, was the one who was primarily in charge of examining the clothing, and he sought expert opinion from Special Constable John Goldfar who was a constable and owned a clothing manufacturing business. Like the skeletal remains that investigators found, bits of the victim's decayed clothing were found in the tree and in the area immediately surrounding the tree. Piecing together what she was most likely wearing at the time of her death was not too terribly difficult, but they couldn't be sure that they were 100% correct 
due to the level of decomposition on the clothing and being in the elements, you know, could have changed the color and the texture and all that kind of stuff. But despite that, they were confident that they had recovered a pair of navy blue cotton knickers that they described as cheap. So Mm. they really like using the word cheap with this girl, which I take to be very rude, but whatever. It's not nice. Like, I I get it, though, also. They're also just trying to be descriptive for the sake of, like, this is not a high-class woman. Potentially. But I just feel like... Did you got to throw that in there? Yeah. At least she wasn't wearing high class clothes at the time. So <laughs> keep going. <laughs> she also had on an underskirt or a slip that was described as either dark peach or fawn in color. Portions of a corset that was somewhat modern in form and function. And then there's the skirt. It's believed that the fabric of the khaki or mustard colored skirt matched the strip of fabric found shoved into the victim's mouth. Mm-hmm. Along with being one of those two colors, it was considered to be, quote, good class and it was made of wool. Hmm. Along with that, there was a cardigan that was also woolen, of good quality, and had navy blue stripes. So she had on like a little cute outfit. Yeah. yeah. It appeared to have been almost made of like a ribbed material. Hmm. It had a knit belt attached to it that was lighter blue, um, and it was like a lighter blue than the navy on the cardigan. Hmm. Okay. So maybe a little bit nicer than I was giving credit for. Yeah, I was was, like side-eyeing you, even though you you didn't have all the information. (laughs) Rude, Kevin. You and Dr. Lund can both get out of here. Just cheap knickerbockers and then Mm. the rest of it were were (laughs) nice. Yeah, I feel that, honestly. So Dr. Lund also looked at her hair, which at this point was also badly decomposed, so it was pretty much impossible to determine what style it had been in when she was alive. Hmm. It was initially believed that she had a mousy brown hair color, but it was later stated in an interview that her hair may have been ginger. Hmm. This was an interesting thing that I'd never heard before, but apparently dark hair fades to a ginger color during decomposition because brown pigment is less stable than red pigment, hmm. which I thought was interesting. That was interesting. But they never really explained if her hair actually was ginger or if it had just faded to that color postmortem. Either way, her hair was described as, quote, neither very short nor very long. Right in the middle. Just right in the middle. Yep. So the final element of her clothing that did end up taking a pretty solid chunk of time investigating was the shoes. Hmm. There had been dispute from the very beginning of this investigation all the way up until today about the shoes. Many people believe that they didn't belong to her. Oh. While others claim that they absolutely had to. Okay. So one shoe was found in the hollow and the other was found near the tree in the area. They were sent off to be analyzed, and Professor Webster actually took care of that with the help of Investigator Williams, who was a detective on the case. They were able to make a few determinations about the shoes. They were size five and a half English standard navy blue shoes. They had at least six months of solid wear on them as well. They were not extremely expensive shoes, but they were also not dumpy either. They were middle of the road style shoes. They tracked down the manufacturer of the shoe who identified like the make and the model of Mm -hmm. the shoe and was able to narrow down the manufacturing of this specific pair as being between April and June of 1940. Hmm. They were also able to figure out which stores had received that shoe in that size. This is like, I feel like there's another, what's the case in California where this was like a whole thing? Ramirez? Yeah. Night Stalker. Yeah. That's, mm-hmm. Yeah, this is a very He wore similar... super specific shoes that they only sold like three pairs of because he's a giant moron. Right. This, this <laughs> or something is, like that. This is obviously not to the same degree, but, right. but a very like same concept of let's find the person by finding the shoe. Right. It's, it's interesting. Cool. Yeah. So they were able to determine that six pairs were sent to C.A. Allen Limited of Bilston Staffordshire. 
72 pairs were sent to Messrs. Ambrose Wilson Limited of London, and 54 pairs were sent to Messrs. Darnell and Son in Shoreditch, London. The crazy thing about this is that they were actually able to track down all but six of the people who had bought the shoes in that size. Oh, wow. Isn't that interesting? That is interesting. It's like good detective work. Yeah, great job, everybody. You can't just like put out a Facebook post about it or like mm-hmm. an Instagram story. Mm-hmm. So I'm impressed by that. Yeah. So investigators went around and talked with shop owners, and they were told by one of them that they recognized the shoe and that it was a popular shoe that would have sold out quickly. Hmm. Like they would not have been on the shelves for months and months, which is helpful in continuing to piece together a timeline. Yeah. It would be reasonable to assume that if these were her shoes, the earliest she would have been able to buy them would be in May or June. But it could have been in the months to follow as well. Regardless... Based only off of the shoes, she would have been dead for roughly two years. So Professor Webster's estimation was looking pretty solid. Hmm. One thing that was stressed a lot at this point, including by Professor Webster, however, was that these shoes were pretty big for someone as small as the victim. Hmm. So while they initially believed that she was five feet tall, later they believed she may have only been somewhere around four foot nine. Oh. Someone that small would have worn a size three to four English standard and not a size five and a half. Hmm. There were also no stocking socks or padding in the shoes discovered in the hollow or anywhere in the area on like on the crime scene at all. Mm -hmm. And there were also no bones or anything inside of the shoes to indicate if she'd been killed and then disposed of while she had them on. So the suspicion was that these shoes may have just been another wrench that the killer or killers threw into the mix to keep investigators off their trail. Oh, wow. Yeah. Hmm. That's frustrating. It's like thinking about that for a second. Yeah. We, we, we love some pretty short people. We do. We need to ask them about their shoe size. Well, my mom is four foot nine. Yeah. Now the world knows it. Sorry, mom. (sighs) Um, and I'm pretty sure she wears the same size shoe as our oldest. Mm -hmm. Well, I remember that for a while that size was not super accessible in like adult shoes. Yeah. So she was like, fine. Luckily they have cute stuff at like target (laughs) and H and M and all those places for like in those sizes. But I remember that she would order like cute heels and stuff from like a special store that they only made the smaller sizes for women. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I remember that. So I thought that that was an interesting thing that they determined. Yeah. Yeah. And it would be one thing if there was like a pad or like a block in the shoe to like help make up for that extra space. But like, yeah, who knows? Didn't have any of that. No. So, hmm. so really that's all of the actual solid evidence that they had to work with bones and clothing which is really sad, but they followed every lead that they could. They worked to attempt to establish what class she may have been, believing that she wasn't like a socialite or extremely wealthy, but that she likely wasn't extremely poor either. Yeah. They thought that based on the overall condition of her remains and the style and quality of her clothing, that she was probably somewhere right in the middle. Hmm. They considered, but opted not to do facial reconstruction at that time. The concern here was that the results of facial reconstruction could be misleading if features weren't like spot on. Gotcha. And the practice as a whole wasn't as common or accurate then as it is now. So I can understand why they opted not to do it. Like we don't need Uh, to confuse this more was the idea. I'm sure pre-computers that is far more difficult to get right too. Oh yeah, I'm sure. Man. So investigators spent a considerable amount of time combing over 3,000 missing persons reports. Focusing on cases involving missing women in the area. They turned over stones on these reports, but they found nothing. Whoever this woman was, nobody had reported her missing, it seems. Hmm. 
Investigators also put out a plea to the public asking for anyone who may know the identity of the woman whose remains they discovered to come forward. And literally not a soul did. Oh. Nobody. So 11 months after the discovery of the body in the tree, an interesting development would appear. On March 28, 1944, a Birmingham man by the name of Wilfred White made a report of two strange sightings. On a wall near his home on Pershore Street, someone had written in chalk, Hagleywood Bella. The other writing was also in chalk in what appeared to be the same handwriting. It read, quote, who put Bella down the witch elm, Hagley Wood. On March 30th, another report was made by a man named James Rowley. Someone had written in chalk who put Lou Beller in the witch elm on a cottage near his home. Police took photos of the writings and sent them off to be analyzed. Once news got wind of this and the photos hit the public, copycat images began popping up all over the area, which is annoying. Oh, yeah, not helpful. But in some ways, it is good that the case is like still remaining interesting to the public. So, like, if we're going to, mm-hmm. like, balance it out a little bit, it's like, okay, well, at least people are talking about it, but, like, this isn't helping. <laughs> yeah. It's not helpful in the sense that they can actually, like, like whittle down, like, evidence. Mm-hmm. But it is helpful in the sense that maybe someone will inevitably step forward with information. Yeah. And they were able to rule out copycats, but it's still, like, yeah. more work to do to, with no, like, actual reward. Yeah. So one publication that had communicated with law enforcement said, quote, the writing was too high on the wall to have been done by boys, and the police are inclined to the view that it is the work of someone coming into the city early in the morning with farm produce, end quote. That is a very specific mm-hmm. Someone's theory. doing it before, because I'm just assuming, they didn't mm-hmm. really get into this in the book I read, but I'm assuming that the people who were coming in and out, maybe under the cover of darkness, mm-hmm. may have been produce sellers. So yeah, I don't know. That would make sense. Yeah. That's interesting that they would say it's too high up on the wall for boys too. Yeah. Because there's a, is, is it, is it because there's like an assumption that girls ride up high and guys write? No, I literally low? think that they just assumed that only boys would pull a hoax like that. And how high up it was written was too tall for like little snotty boys to be able to reach. <laughs> I think they funny. excluded girls completely because. They didn't think girls would do it. Got it. So they said it wasn't like a small boy. It was mm-hmm. either an adult man mm-hmm. or, yeah. Yeah. An adult man. I guess that's what it would be. <laughs> yeah. So it feels like a very of the time statement. Yes. Just like from beginning to end. Yeah. So writings worth investigating stopped for a few months until August 1st, 1944, when another writing was spotted under an archway in Wolverham- Wolverhampton. Wolverhampton. Wolver- Wolverhampton. Wolverhampton. <laughs> Wolverhampton. I'm trying to. Wolverhampton. I'm trying to be proper, but Wolverhampton. I am also in the middle of the middle of the United States. Yes, yes. So anyway, it said, "quote Hagleywood Lubella address opposite the Rose and Crown Hasbury." End quote. Hmm. Then on the third, someone wrote this on a fence. "quote Address was opposite Rose and Crown Hasbury, Hagleywood Lubella." What? And then another one popped up saying Hagleywood Lubella was no pros, end quote. What are these people communicating to each other? Well, that one, unfortunately, is a like a shorthand, I think, for prostitute. Oh. So I think they were saying she was not a prostitute. Oh, OK. I don't I don't really understand that or a, a sex worker of some kind. Mm-hmm. I don't 
I don't know what they were insinuating. I thought that one was weird too. That is odd. So then in October, somebody wrote, quote, Hagleywood Lubella address was 404 Lower Hasbury Halesowen, end quote. Oh. Yeah. So when investigators followed up on that address, the place they ended up visiting had been owned by an elderly couple who'd lived there for like 60 years. So definitely not there. And neither of them had even heard about the case. So this was a dead end, obviously. Mm. So messages like this continued to pop up and investigators got really good at recognizing the ones that were made with the same chalk and the same handwriting. Mm. Okay. And then the messages stopped. In 1945, World War II came to a close and this was a massively historic time all over the entire world, with England being no exception. Right. The focus pretty quickly turned away from the mysterious Bella in the tree and towards welcoming soldiers home and trying to rebuild a new sense of normal post-war. Right. People all but forgot about the girl in the tree. But in 1993, the most famous of all the chalk writings would appear on the obelisk in Witchbury, which is like a big stone structure. Mm -hmm. And it read, Who Put Bella in the Witch Elm? And really, since the chalk writings first appeared in 1944, there's been at least some level of interest in both the public sense and in the realm of professional investigation. Yeah, I just got goosebumps from that. That's like really, I don't know what what it is about someone writing that on an obelisk, but mm-hmm. like, it's just a little like, I don't know, that's kind of creepy. It is. Yeah. I agree with you. There are plenty of solid leads and plenty of theories as to who this woman was and what happened to her that have popped up. Over the last almost 80 years. Wow. Yeah, it's crazy. That is, that's, I don't know why, but my brain didn't process the fact that that was 80 years ago. Right. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. Yeah, it's pretty wild. So before I get too ahead of myself, I'm going to share some of the sporadic things that popped up that may or may not be relevant to the case. Mm -hmm. So in 1944, a handbag was found in Hagley Wood. It was obvious from the get-go that it had been there for a long time. It was falling apart and it was covered with moss. Hmm. This was important because if an item, maybe like a handbag or skeletal remains, had the time to acquire mold growth or moss growth, this would give investigators and forensics experts an idea of a timeline. Oh, okay. Yeah. That makes sense? Yeah. So the skeletal remains had not had moss on them, but it had been an additional year and a half by the time this bag was found about 170 yards from the witch elm. However, this would turn out to belong to a woman who had her purse stolen when she was in that area. So oh, wah, wah. not helpful. <laughs> not helpful. <laughs> it's like every time you get your hopes up, you mm-hmm. just get them dashed. Right. So the chalk writings did lead investigators to zoom in on a few missing persons cases in April and May of 1944. They spent a lot of time focusing quite a bit on cases that involved a woman with either the first or middle name that could have earned them the nickname Bella. Yeah. Isabella, Lou Bella, names like that. Yeah. This unfortunately turned up nothing relevant to the case. The frustrating lack of answers in this case may not have remained as front page news, but many people have theorized as to what happened to Bella and police followed up on all the leads that made sense. So even though it was like fading from public attention, Mm -hmm. anytime there was a tip that seemed worth following up on, they did. Wow. And the book I read, I mean, I can't remember if I talk about this later or not. But, I mean, they dig into all of the missing persons cases that the people zoomed in on. Wow. Yeah. So you can read all of them from beginning to end. Oh, geez. And it's wild. Th- these books are incredible. I'll yeah. talk more about them at the end. It's, okay. it's wild. Hmm. All right. So let's talk about some theories. Okay. Okay. So remember how I talked about one of the hands missing when they did the initial investigation on the crime scene? Yes. Okay. So parts of the bones of the right hand did end up being discovered near the site, but they were buried under the ground. 
So this oh. led many people to speculate whether the victim was killed at the hands of a specific group of people. One group being gypsies, or as they preferred to be called as travelers. Okay. Uh, and the other being an occultist group. Ooh, that so is spooky. Yeah. <laughs> so I'll explain a little bit about both of these theories, but honestly, I really don't believe that either of these are the case. Okay. A lot of people do like these, though, so I feel like I have to at least put them out there. Sure. So the first theory is that a group of Romani gypsies or travelers killed the woman as part of a ritual. Okay. This is honestly just another example of the age-old tendency that humans have to look at a group of people with different yeah. cultural practices and then choosing for no observable reason to pin an unsolved crime on them. Like this feels like a problem now, you know what I mean? Borderline racism is what's going on. Really. And it it was dispelled by pretty much anybody worth their salt. Unfortunately, it did gain traction with the public for a while though. People were like, they did it. I knew they did it. Yeah. Cause they had been like, they had set up camp in different woods during the war. Mm. And so they blamed them. It was so dumb. There was no reason for it. So just as a quick side note, while I was researching this story, I did learn that there are distinctions between ethnic gypsy groups and general nomadic people groups, and that landing on the correct terms for each of these groups has been like a hard fought battle. Mm, I don't know a ton about it, but I did read that. And so to avoid being rude, I'm going to use the term traveler from this point forward, just so that I've put that out there. Sure. Okay. So the long and short of the theory was that traveler groups were seen in the area They passed through during this time, and it's believed that the victim, who was an outsider, had crossed into the area where they set up camp, so they abducted her, killed her, and disposed of her body, Mm. Um, or that she was a member of the group that, for whatever reason, maybe she committed a crime, they killed her and stuffed her in a tree. Well, that was really the idea. Yeah. So police followed up on multiple specific cases of missing women within these communities, and while there was some overlap between these individual women and people that were in contact with them, it really didn't lead to anything. Mm-hmm. So there's just no compelling evidence that this group had anything to do with it, even with the investigations. Sure. Yeah. Okay. So sorry if you guys can hear it's like storming crazy and hailing and like the whole nine yards. So I mean, I guess it's just adding like spooky vibes to yeah, the that's story. All. Yeah. That's all. Okay. So this is good timing for a creepy background storm. <laughs> so we're going to talk about the possibility that this was a ritualistic murder committed by an occultist group. Oh, that's the that's a spooky one. Okay. This is a spooky one. So I'm not sure when this theory popped up initially. But a lot of people were convinced that it's at least a possibility after a noteworthy woman weighed in and posited this theory. So a right hand being removed and buried is actually a specific ritual known as the hand of glory. According to Mm. a renowned professor, archaeologist, folklorist, and anthropologist by the name of Dr. Margaret Alice Murray. So we're going to talk about Dr. Murray for a minute before we move on. Okay. So Dr. Margaret Alice Murray had an impressive resume, as I've already listed. Yeah. On top of that list of accomplishments, she was a professor at University College London from 1838 until 1935, retiring at the age of 72. Oh, wow. Yeah. She had assisted on all kinds of archaeological digs globally, and she specialized in Egyptology and had a special interest in European occult and witch practices. Interesting. Big thunder. So if anyone knew a thing or two about the ins and outs of European witchcraft, it was this lady. Yeah. So her theory was that Bella was the victim of the ritual known as the Hand of Glory, which was a practice where someone who commits a crime against a coven is executed by hanging during a lunar eclipse. And then the hand that was used to commit the crime is removed and buried. 
Hmm. When it's unearthed, it's said that the relic will grant you the power to open locks. It can lead you to treasure and can cast spells on people. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Very powerful. Yes. So this, some cool detective has a really special power that he didn't tell anybody about. Right. Dang it. <laughs> <laughs> this feels like something out of like a Sherlock Holmes. Yeah, yeah it does. Mystery. Yeah. So it's a wild theory, obviously, but Dr. Murray had been interviewed in papers about it. And this really gave some momentum to the theory that a local coven was living in the woods and practicing this old European ritual. Ooh, that makes me think of the uh, the intro for American Horror Story. Ooh. Yeah, remember that one? That's really spooky. Yeah, spooky. They did a good job on that one. They did. So bizarrely enough, people bought into it, including the police. Hmm. This theory only continued to gain momentum when people connected this theory to another murder that had occurred in 1945. This was the murder of a 74-year-old farmer by the name of Charles Walton. Hmm. So content warning here. This next part is really upsetting and brutal. And so anyone who doesn't want to hear about that should skip forward a couple minutes. So on February 14th, 1945, Charles Walton had his walking stick taken from him. He was then savagely beaten over the head with his walking stick. He had defensive wounds and cuts on his arms as he tried to fend off his attacker or attackers before he had his throat cut with a sickle blade. Oh, no. Brutal. Yeah. So the attacker left the sickle blade in his neck. The attacker then took a pitchfork and stabbed it through Charles, pinning him to the ground with the weapon. Oh. So gruesome. Yeah. So in some accounts of this story, there was also a cross carved into Charles's chest, but I haven't been able to verify that. Okay. Yeah. So the reason that Dr. Murray and others believe that these cases were connected and that they both involved witchcraft is because of the hand of glory ritual that was believed to be relevant to the case and based off of the old European practice known as stackung which is a term describing how witches were dealt with by being pierced with spikes. Hmm, okay. There are lots of other crimes committed that involve this practice across Europe that I'll probably cover at some point. But yeah, that was really the whole crux of the theory. Wow. This got major, major public attention. Like, oh no, the witches are coming for us. Right. <laughs> it wasn't quite a frenzy or like a major panic like other ones we've seen through history, but it was definitely a popular theory that kind of kept people on their toes for quite a while. Hmm. It was so popular that Scotland Yard even spent time looking into these cases, and they attempted to figure out if they were connected and if they were committed by some mysterious occult society or coven. But this mm. obviously didn't go anywhere. But, you know, you get Scotland yeah. Yard on it, and it's yeah. like, oh, There's snap. There's enough concern that they need to get, yeah. Mm-hmm. So there was this guy by the name of Wilfred Byford Jones. Okay. That's a name. That sure is. <laughs> he had many occupations that overlapped each other over the years, one of the most notable being that he was a journalist. In November of 1953, Wilfred added his thoughts on the Hagleywood murder mystery to the mix. While they initially served the purpose of exploring the witch theory, as he worked through it in his articles, he decided that he didn't accept either of the theories I've just listed. The theory of witchcraft and the theory that the murder was committed by travelers. Hmm. Okay. So basically to summarize these two articles, he worked through things and he got to sort of like a climax where he said that these are both garbage. They make no actual sense. And we just like to freak ourselves out. <laughs> or he knows. Or he knows and he's trying to cover it up. <laughs> yeah. Conspiracy. He also discussed the chalk writings and said that he believed that those were not a hoax and that they were organized by someone or someones mm. who knew what happened to Bella. 
And they all just kind of called her Bella after the chalk writings came up. Just so so I'm not confusing anybody. So wildly enough, the day after the second of his two articles on the subject were published, someone did reach out to him, but not for the reasons that he'd expected. Hmm. So he received a two page handwritten letter that said, I'm just going to read it. Quote, okay, finish your articles. Read the witch elm crime by all means. They are interesting to your readers, but you will never solve the mystery. The one person who could give the answers is now beyond the jurisdiction of earthly courts. The affair is closed and involves no witches, black magic, or moon knight rites. Much as I hate having to use nom de plume, I think you would appreciate it if you knew me. The only clues I can give you are that the person responsible for the crime died insane in 1942, and the victim was Dutch and arrived illegally in England about 1941. I have no wish to recall anymore. I am no hoaxer. What happened to our mutual friend? Did he return to dash, 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 yours sincerely, Anna? So the dash, dash, dash Hmm. covered something that was like not readable. It was like not legible. Oh, okay. So this person, isn't that so crazy? Yeah. So this person went under what's believed to be the fake name of Anna of Claverly. Investigators searched high and low for Dutch people in the area, thinking that maybe they could find the writer of this letter organically, but this led to nowhere. Mm. So they put it out there to the public, begging the writer of this letter to come forward and give them the information that they needed to be able to close this case once and for all. And Anna came forward. What? Yes, this is crazy. Ooh, I just got goosebumps again. I know, I know. So a woman by the name of Una Hainsworth went to the Kenilworth police station and gave them a statement. She told them that she had written the letter with the pen name to protect her privacy. She told them that she was once married to a man by the name of Jack Mossop. At first, everything in their marriage went smoothly, and they had even welcomed a child together. But sometime in the 1940s, Jack had made friends with a man who Una believed was Dutch, and his name was Van Ralt. That's the only thing she knew him by, Hmm, Van Ralt, which felt like a code name. More importantly, though, she believed that he was involved in some sort of shady business. Hmm. She thought that he could have potentially even been a spy. It was weird because they weren't a wealthy couple, but there would be times that Jack would come home after hanging out with this Van Ralt character, and he'd have a bunch of money. Just for fun. Just from some unknown source. So one night, Jack came home, and he was like pale as a ghost. He seemed like super upset and like agitated. Mm -hmm. So he asked Una to make him another drink. He then told her that he, Van Ralt, and another person, a woman who Jack called the Dutch piece... Hmm, which I don't like that feels derogatory, but they'd been drinking and hanging out and things had gotten pretty wild. Depending on the version of the story, the woman had either passed out in the car or had actually died in the car that they were in. So they decided to take her to the wood where they proceeded to stick her in a tree. Oh no. If she was alive in the alive version, assuming she'd wake up and come to her senses in the morning. Which doesn't make any sense to me. So Jack was feeling bad about it. So he went back to the tree the next day to see if she needed help. But she was dead when he got there. Oh, no. So after this confession, Jack went downhill. After some time of fighting and dealing with Jack's erratic behavior, Una actually divorced him. Mm. Seeing him only three more times after that point. He had told her on one of these occasions that he thought that he was losing his mind. He told her that he was having nightmares, that the woman was staring at him from inside the hollow of the tree. Like, it sounds like his guilt 
was yeah. like eating him up. Oh, for sure. So in 1942, he was taken to the Stafford Mental Hospital, where he died at the age of 29. Jack Mossop died before the body wow. was found. And this is a true story, verified wow. by records and everything. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, obviously, not ver- the story that he told was not verified, but Jack Mossop was a real person yeah. who died with like a clinical diagnosis oh at Stafford goodness. Mental Hospital. Yeah. And obviously his his widow, well, divorced, wh- whatever, whatever she, she is, mm-hmm. she wouldn't have any benefit to come tell the story. At this point, she wouldn't, no. Like, hmm. it's not like a revenge thing or whatever. Right, right. So she actually had no idea about the Hagley Wood murder until she saw an article in the newspaper. She said that she told nobody about this at all, and that when she was reading the articles, the details made it feel obvious to her that Jack's experience was connected to the Hagley Wood murder. Hmm. When she saw the articles that Wilfred Byford Jones had written exploring the witchcraft theory, it was kind of just like, all right, I've been holding on to this too long. Mm -hmm. I need to come forward. Mm -hmm. And so she told her husband's story. And that brings us full circle. So unfortunately, with no sign of whoever this Van Ralt guy was, and with Jack Mossop dead, there was no way for investigators to follow up on this lead, so they really couldn't do anything with his story. Hmm. No one else had ever heard of a guy named Van Ralt? I mean, I don't know. That frustrates me. Very frustrating. I feel like of the things I've presented so far, that that one feels the most likely. Yeah. Some other theories did gain traction over the years, such as the theory that Bella was a missing sex worker. Another was that she was a refugee who had sought safety in Birmingham, but was killed by bomb blasts that were happening all across Europe at the time. Hagley Wood was a place where people who were displaced by the war would actually hide out. Hmm. So that one could potentially be true. Yeah, okay. But unfortunately, there's not really any way to prove either of these either. The case has sort of remained in the periphery of the minds of the public. Over the course of decades, many people have written books, worked through theories, and sought answers. In 2005, a police closure report was written that summarized the case. It did make this statement that made me really sad. Quote, the final resting place of the bones has yet to be ascertained. In such cases, the remains were buried in a pauper's grave. Enquiries with the cemeteries within Stourbridge and surrounding West Midlands area have failed to identify the resting place of the deceased. End quote. Mm. So what had happened here was that the skeleton had remained in the forensics lab and it was there for a while after Professor Webster had retired. It was transported to a forensic lab that was kind of like it doubled up as like a police lab museum. It was a very confusing structure. So this was on Newton Street and the bones were studied and displayed, serving as a reminder that sometimes, no matter how hard you try or what resources you have, sometimes murderers just flat out get away with their crimes. From what I gathered, it was a lab in one area of the building, and then another area was a museum, and that's where she was displayed. Hmm, That's what I understood from what I read. Sure. When the museum closed in 1968, the contents of the museum sort of changed hands and got lost in the shuffle. At this point, nobody knows where the remains ended up. Oh, that's sad. So not only was she unable to be identified, she was also never given a final resting place, and her Mm. killer or killers never had to face justice for what they did to her. Oh, I hate that. Me too. In 2018, a woman named Professor Caroline Wilkinson and another woman named Sarah Shrimpton from Face Lab at Liverpool Johns Moores University were approached by the author of the books that I read for the story. Hmm. They were both, Professor Wilkinson in particular, incredible and noteworthy in their field. They work in facial reconstruction. Hmm. So anyways, 
They had to use photos of the skull since the remains are unaccounted for. Right. They used autopsy reports and investigation reports about the victim's hair and clothing to put together a facial reconstruction. Obviously, with this case, it's tricky because the remains were entirely skeletal and only photographed, so they couldn't get, like, three-dimensional imagery of it. But they worked hard to create an image that might resemble the victim as she was in life. And so I'll make sure to share that because you just never know. Yeah. You just never know. Summerton man case was solved and that one took a long time. So, or mostly solved, I guess. Yeah. So anyways, the books that I use for my research for this story were who put Bella in the witch elm volumes one and two. They were written by a father son duo and published under the son's name, Alex Merrill. Hmm. Alex Merrill was 15 when they start either when they started this project or when they published it. Oh, wow. And he did a lot of the, wow. Yeah. Hmm. He put a lot of work into this. So, And it was a huge undertaking. They got access to all kinds of documents spanning for over 70 years. They conducted countless interviews. They worked through all of the existing theories. They dispelled ones that are false and so on. So I highly recommend that you pick up copies of these books. Hmm. They are so worth it. I'll make sure to link those in the show notes. But at the end of the day, this is a story that has been interesting and meaningful to people all across the world for a long time. Yeah. My most sincere hope is that her remains are able to be located and put to rest and that maybe, just maybe, someone out there knows for certain who put Bella in the witch elm and that we'll get to see this mystery solved in our lifetime. And that is what I have for you this week. Wow. That is a pretty crazy story. And man, I'll tell you what, I think even though it's unsolved, I feel like there's still a degree of like... I don't know. It's, it's not like, it's not like other unsolved mysteries where it's just frustrating the whole time. Mm -hmm. Like this feels like I'm not frustrated. I'm obviously like disappointed, Yeah. but it's just a different kind of a feeling where I'm like, man, that's really too bad. But yeah, maybe because there's just not like, I don't know, I I guess lady of lady of the lake still lady of the dunes, lady of the dunes Mm -hmm. still didn't have any, anybody missing her either. So I guess that's not really a whole lot different. Well, the thing with that one though, is that there were leads that made a lot of sense that they followed up on. And it was obvious that they weren't connected versus this one where like we are left with a couple of theories that actually do make a lot of logical sense. Mm -hmm. And then the sad part is that how are we ever going to prove these? Right. Yeah. That's a good point. So it's just a different tone. Like it being unsolved is obviously the frustrating element and the sad element. Like I feel sad that this person died probably in a horrific manner was disposed of and forgotten. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is, that is crushing. That is so sad to think about. Yeah. Um, I, my personal belief is that the story that Una Hainsworth told about Jack Mossop and Van Ralt was true. Yeah. That one makes a lot of sense. And honestly, I guess maybe that's why it feels a little bit less frustrating is because that seems to be a really like compelling story to, kind of pin it on without a whole lot of like concern. <laughs> if Una Hainsworth would have become like a celebrity after this, I might've questioned it. Yeah. But from what I gathered, she literally went in and said, this is my statement. Uh-huh. Um, maybe don't plaster my face. Yeah. On, you yeah. know what I mean? Like she was not trying to gain a moment of fame right. from what I gathered. Yeah. And so it feels to me like, what would anybody have to gain? There was not a money reward. Right. You know, it was literally just, all right, this is the right thing for me to do. Mm-hmm. And the story that she told, if she was telling the truth, that sounds extremely, extremely plausible. Yeah. 
foolish. Like we're totally. going to put somebody in a tree cause they're drunk. Yeah. That doesn't there's, make any sense. Yeah, there's a whole lot that would be odd about all that, but, but as <laughs> for the theories, that one or that she was either a refugee or a sex worker makes sense. Yeah. So, hmm. well, for everybody listening, thank you for listening to the unusual, unsettling, and unsavory story today. Um, I don't really know how to rank this one. I feel like unsavory is the closest, but, but, uh, there were definitely moments. <laughs> moments of both of the other ones. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 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 How about, how do you feel about this one? Um, I think that there's a lot of unusual elements, mm. but I think just the general nature of like the crime. Yeah. And I don't know. There's something about a case being a spectacle. Yeah. Like I, I think public interest is normal and like actually a good yeah. thing and, yeah. and can lead to a lot of of helpful elements being added to a case. But I think that there were moments of this that like people were looking for a thrill, mm-hmm. which makes me feel unsavored. Like that kind of grosses me mm. out a little bit, like looking, looking to what happened to this woman and trying to find the most outlandish, crazy explanation for the sake of entertainment is kind of what it, it felt like. Yeah, that's true. Um, yeah. So that is unsavory. And then yeah. just the fact that this happened to somebody mm. is incredibly unsavory to yeah. me. So Unusual and unsavory for the most part for me. Yeah. Well, if you enjoyed today's episode, uh, please make sure that you subscribe and leave a glowing five-star review. As I've said in the past, five-star reviews help other people find this podcast. So make sure that you do it. Um, And also, if you would give us a follow on social media at this one is a doozy on Instagram and TikTok and on Facebook, this one's a doozy podcast. And uh, if you have a, an opinion on whether this story is unusual, unsettling, unsavory, any combination of those three, um, please comment on the post for this one and let us know what you think about this one. And lastly, if you have a personal story or if you have a recommendation for a story, you can email us. This one is a doozy at gmail.com. You can share your stories with us so that we can put them in uh, an episode at the end of the month. That's mm-hmm. going to be all... Uh, stories from you which is really really exciting doozies by uzies doozies by uzies <laughs> and uh, i haven't heard any of them yet i know and i feel hey, like i have so yeah, much power you really do really. <laughs> i mean this is every single episode i've never heard of any that's of these true things. that's true <laughs> that's true yeah but with that we will see you not next week but later this week for a bonus doozy Thank goodness, spooky season. We will see you then. Thanks, bye. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.